this is the Stand Alone podcast. I think we all, as humans, have a capacity to deal with so much, much, much more than we think we can deal with. We can deal with things, even painful things. We can come out the other side, even if it takes years and years. It's a process, you know, and you can't hurry these things. My name's Jay, and I'm producing this podcast series for Standalone UK, supporting estranged adults in everyday life. I'm not a drug user or drinker. I live simply and I like to live healthily. It's awful for people who can't cope without additional sources in, in this way. And if others are struggling, they can hopefully see that there might be an end to the struggle for themselves. So I'm hoping by sharing, I'm helping somebody to understand it is a process and you can achieve, you can come out and feel whole again. Across these episodes, 10 participants who have very kindly offered to share their experiences of family estrangement. I'm her child, I'm her flesh and blood. I think I've just come to a point now where I don't want any more hurt and it's safer for me to stay where I am. It's just been a mess of a life. You need your family, you need that love, that nurturing. That's what I've always looked for all my life. No two experiences of estrangement are the same, but hopefully throughout this podcast series, you'll hear useful ideas to take away, whether they're similar journeys or contrasting opinions. Humans can't fight all the time. It's impossible. And that's why I say life shouldn't just be about being miserable. There's enough negativity around. We don't need to experience it in our homes as well. Hello, I'm Nicola. Hello, Nicola. On today's episode of the Standalone Podcast, we're meeting Nicola. Recently, after years of a difficult relationship, Nicola is going through the process of estrangement from her parents. But she's also experiencing aspects of estrangement from her four children, and also, therefore, her grandchildren. Going towards the retirement age now, so my mental health doesn't allow me to work, really. Oh, do you mind if I ask more about that? Yep. I've got a diagnosis. I did realise there was something wrong with me because of the way I think and the way I process things. I'm quite an open person, quite bubbly, but I get confused with understanding what other people want from me or I dwell on conversations for quite a while. I think I still try and digest them as the moment has come and gone. You dwell on conversations? Hmm. I think when I was younger, it would be things like you'd say, did I do that right? And then you beat yourself up because you didn't do it right or you didn't come out with a punchline. And then I find that I remember bits of conversations and I stick with that rather than flowing. And then I, I have trouble processing, I think. The first thing that we talked about was her mental health and her neurodiversity. Nicola phrases it as a mood disorder. And it's this diagnosis that was initially very difficult for Nicola to deal with that has provided her with some kind of clarity in moving forward. My mental health means more than that. It's not just processing. It was a mood disorder. It is a mood disorder. I've been diagnosed in the last 10 years, I think. So I've almost lived all my life without having a diagnosis. And then when I received the diagnosis, I was really 
upset about it because I couldn't believe that was me. <laughs> and it took a long time from that point to get support, but also more than that, to stabilise the mood disorder, which just meant it went from one extreme to the other so that I was just all over the place, really. And I could go from different states throughout the day. You know, so it was very tiring, very demanding. I was always restless, always had this huge amount of energy and discharging it in all kinds of ways. Through chatting with people online, I got pointed in the right direction for some medication that came from America. And I put it to the professionals and they said, yeah, we'll give it a try. That actually helped. <laughs> as soon as I took it, I could tell the effect was stop all the agitation, you know, the extremes. It was like everything settled down. So it was such a wonderful feeling from if you could visualize yourself being like in a shirt and being pulled one way and then being pulled the other way, you know, it's nice to be stable. You can think, you can process things easier. It's taken all my life to work myself out, really. So I've never really felt particularly safe around other people. I've always questioned how I've come across or my thought processes. Thank you for sharing that. Looking back on when you received that diagnosis 10 years ago until now, and considering that you say you found this, this medication through talking with people online, which means you don't have as much of those extremes and can process things better. Looking back, are you happy that you got the diagnosis? Yes, definitely, because it kind of made sense then. I think without the diagnosis, you're just looking for an identity or for answers or you're always asking why are you the one that is the way you are. For Nicola, it sounds like it's been a really positive process to get a diagnosis. But for many people, diagnosis is really negative and can be problematic for them and gives them a label that they don't feel they want, need or deserve. This is Becca Bland, the founder and CEO of Standalone UK. And I'm thinking particularly with people who get diagnosed with personality disorder, there's a long-standing campaign to change the name of that label because it does make someone seem as if they haven't got a good enough personality. And so I think there is controversy around labelling in, in that way. But if it's worked for Nicola, then obviously that's great for her and her journey. And you can say that in estrangement too, people didn't always have a label for what was happening to them. And it has actually really helped someone to be able to say, I've got a label and I've got a word that defines what I'm going through. And that helps me to work through it. Then when you find that you're not alone, there is a reason for it. You know, it could be something I was born with. I mean, the medication stops the surges, so it allows things to say smooth in the brain you know there's synapses and instead of them like trying to all force through a gate all at once they can flow through <laughs> that's how I understood it anyway I don't feel safe around the people I don't want other people judging me I don't want them to think there's something wrong with me but at least I know there's a reason for the way that I am 
some people may find medication so helpful, whereas others find that it's not something that's worked for them. So I think in all of these things, it's an individual response. And sometimes I think the medical system can't respond very well to family estrangement issues as such, and they may try and pathologize them in some ways. Uh, and that hasn't been very helpful for some people in that sense. Forgive me, pathologize? Yeah, so to make it sound like it's a disorder. So that family estrangement or not having contact with a close family member is the symptom of a disordered mind, let's say. And that isn't true at all. It could be true of one particular case, but you can't say that that is a sweeping statement that could apply to absolutely everyone in that position. So, for example, so many people get disowned. So would you say that somebody like Blair, who's been distanced for coming out as LGBT, would you say that his kind of case fits that analogy? Then it just isn't true of everyone. Yeah, I guess it's that individual take on your own experience and the interactions with other people are yeah. going to be so different for everybody. Yeah. And I guess for Nicola, just having this marker of an identity has been useful for her own journey in understanding the way that she responds to other people. Oh, absolutely. And if it's been useful for her and she feels it's, you know, something that's added something to her life, then that's great. She's one side of the coin. And I think it's just right to point out that not everyone may feel that way, both about diagnosis and medication. Yeah, definitely don't like to be in a crowd or to be on my own. But saying that, as a child and as a very young adult, I travelled, so I was able to do that then. But I think you, throughout your life, you have different ways of coping, and it makes sense at different parts of your life. You can't always see yourself as you were then and how you are now. These mood swings and this feeling of people judging you and not feeling safe, does that factor into your estrangement from family? With my parents... I can't feel settled or safe with them. I'm always questioning when I'm around them and always working out trying to be who I am or what they want from me. And it's a huge stress, exhausting, because I don't know what they accept and what they want. And that's my perception. If you were to ask them, they might see me and how I come across as totally different. Uh, They don't particularly understand my mental health. I find it very difficult to try and explain to them because I think they see mental health as a weakness or um, something you should be able to overcome. You know, my mum was at pains to ask whether I was born like that. I don't have the answers other than if it's a chemical imbalance, there's chemicals that help to settle me. Before I had a diagnosis, I've tried every which way to feel better about myself but it wasn't happening it was only when I had the diagnosis even though I railed against it that it finally made sense that's who I was and I think I probably would have continued to deny it other than my husband who straight away was was very assured we'd met we didn't know there was anything wrong with me other than I was there kooky shall we say or I go where angels fear to tread you know I don't kind of think about dangers and things and I have a different way of expressing or seeing life and I think that's the big appeal with my husband you know he he enjoys all that that offers but it made sense to him then when there was a diagnosis his way of supporting was to say don't keep fighting it accept it and be who you are 
but my perspective, I was trying to always be better. I mean, I wanted the diagnosis, but I wanted to be well. I wanted to overcome it, you know, but it, it can't be overcome, really. That's my limitations. So I see it now as a disability because it sets me apart. I have to accept that and I don't fight it anymore. But if I put myself in situations before, then I would spend a lot of time crying and being very distressed because it was too much for me. I couldn't cope under those conditions I put myself in. I wonder whether any of that feeling of it being a disability rather than a, you know, a difference, does, does that perhaps stem from your parents? And how they reacted to it. They just don't understand what disabilities are. For them, a disability would be a physical impediment. I don't think they have much experience of what a mental disability is. My mum would say things like, she doesn't know what depression is. (laughs) She, She really doesn't know what depression is. She says, I've never suffered with depression. So she doesn't understand why somebody else would suffer with it. In her way of coping, you can overcome these things. The pressure of trying to overcome everything that came from my parents. You can't fail. You've got to succeed at everything. You've got to push yourself forward. You've got to show you've got that metal. And I think they they see it as a weakness if you don't have the metal that they seem to have or that was impressed on them when they were younger. My mum will say things like, don't you have a backbone? That is very upsetting because I want to be accepted who I am, but I don't want to fail in my mum's eyes, you know, and that feels like I've failed. Do you think she might ever understand? Do you think she'll understand? No, no. Yeah, I mean, that's something that I think is a very generational attitude and something that could have been informed by wartime standards as well, where having a particularly emotional response to something was seen as weakness in the context of we all had to pull together at a time of great strife as a nation. So our collective mentality changed and that we began to repress and repress and repress our emotional responses to huge pain, huge suffering, huge death, huge destruction. Those mentalities are hard to shift. And I think previous generations do still hang on to that idea that it's better to have a stiff upper lip, to push it down, and it will just get better on its own. Whereas I think we have moved now into a time where actually it's much better for us to be expressive about it. Our expectations are that people will take their mental health seriously and that they will understand the impact that their mental health has on other people. And I don't think that's an unfair expectation because it's about how you interact with people in the world. It's how you treat the people you love and it's what you expect from them. And sometimes people may expect far too much from people, may expect far too much on the one hand to put up with people being abusive and difficult just because it's family. And on the other hand, there could be a high expectation that people will have the ability and the skills to actually look at their own mental health when they come from a generation where that just hasn't been taught to them or expected. I think that Nicola's case is is really common, is that people do really yearn for people to acknowledge their own mental health issues that may be causing and impacting them in, in a really negative fashion. 
and in many cases face up to it and say this isn't about you this is actually about me and I'm feeling really awful and I'm feeling depressed and anxious and my reaction to you is a product of that and that's very very hard for people to do Mm. it takes a lot of insight a lot of self-awareness probably years in counseling to earn that kind of perspective on yourself so I think anyone that expects that should just know it's a long road and that getting people into help and support is the first step towards that my mum got upset about something over the phone didn't leave me room for discussion just came down very accusingly I was very upset to be accused and I tried to make contact to try and explain the situation try to understand the situation try to broach things so that there was a future my mum didn't want to explore that at all it it was just this is what's happened this is how I see it's happened I'm blaming you I I said no I don't know anything about it let's understand it a bit better and she says no you're in the wrong and then she refused to speak to me for quite a while wouldn't take phone calls from me when I spoke again and I was, hello, mum, how are you? Oh, you've rang again, have you? Well, I'm still not happy with you. And then went again into a lengthy one-sided discussion about how I'd failed her, how I could have dealt with it better, how I should have a backbone and brought in other levels to do with my children, which I found to be abusive, really. She wasn't stopping. She wasn't thinking about the impact. She was angry. And that was her way of dealing with it, with um, thrashing out and just blaming. And I felt helpless. I felt belittled as a child, belittled as a human and not seen as an adult. And then a further conversation at much later time, she did say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. We can do this. We can do that. Let it go. I think now that hurt was so great to hear not only how she pressured me, how she wanted me to go to the lens she wanted for me to do what she thought was right for her sake, but not only that, to express it in such a way that she didn't think I was a strong enough person. You know, you haven't got a backbone. What is wrong with you? She even said, won't your mental health allow you to? It was like one assault after another. I thought, no, this is my mum's way. I'm not like this. I don't think she's looking at it right. I couldn't really defend myself. I was just using the information she was giving me to try and deal with the situation, you know, because it was a, a limited communication as it was, you know, so I wasn't getting the full facts when I tried to tell her from the position I was coming from what I knew about it she wasn't listening to that so I thought this is my mum's way it's attack it's belittle it's bully it's abuse and I thought it's not health it's not on and I'm not having it. We see everyday people coming forward who have been subject to abuse in their childhood or early adulthood or even in their adult lives from family members and It's not uncommon for patterns of heavy criticism to emerge when abuse, physical, sexual or emotional, may stop in childhood. So I think heavily critical relationships like we've seen here with Nicola, I think 
it's very, very difficult, isn't it? Because who wants to move closer to an intensely critical person? It's very, very hard to want to do that. And it's very, very hard to have the patience and the the sense of control over your own mental health to be able to do that. But I think it's really wise to remember that often very, very critical people are the most critical of themselves. I'm not saying that that excuses anything, but I think it's just really good to understand people's context that often people that kind of are heavily critical in one direction will be so in an interior direction too. So I haven't wanted to continue with communicating with my mum. I was sending parcels of things. I made cakes or (laughs) if I saw something I liked I sent it to them and I think they liked that because I don't think they were getting that kind of communication from anybody. And I think at that point that my mum was saying, sorry, there's nobody else in the family apart from her sister who communicates. And so they've got a very limited network and they are getting vulnerable and fragile in their age, their circumstances, and they could have done with the support. But I feel that I can't overlook the harm. I mean, it's been a lifelong harm but it's also my mum has to share some responsibility for the barbs in her words she could choose not to say it like that she could choose to take out the tone the way that she chooses to challenge something it means I'm not having a relationship with my dad and I miss both of them I I've always wanted a proper relationship and I've always had a very chaotic fragmented relationship very painful relationship so I think I've just come to a point now where I just I don't want any more hurt and it's safer for me to stay where I am but I'm bearing in mind that their days are less on this earth and I don't quite know how to deal with that I have tried to ask for support so I can deal with that it's created a lot of anger in me because it's just been a mess of a life, a mess of communication that I haven't been the daughter or seen as a person that is of worth in their eyes. It sounds to me that although this is, of course, really difficult to deal with, it sounds like there are a lot of positives from not speaking to them as well. Yeah, yeah. The conversations were never two-way. I've tried to ask, has my mum got her own mental health issues? It's quite possible she has. I, I believe very strongly there is a thread of mental health going through our family now. But my mum wouldn't accept, wouldn't see herself as being weak, and so she will not see herself as being in need in this way. Her way has worked for, for a long time, so that's the way she's going to use. You say there that it was always that your parents thought that you were weak, but... I see a huge strength in you and what you've needed to do and cutting off communication. I think you need to be a strong person to do that, in my opinion. Hmm. Yeah, because it's painful. It really is. I think that's where the anger, a lot of the anger has come from because I've wanted what I've been denied, which has been a family network. The way I see a family could or should have been I understand that a family is made up of personalities and 
personalities are very difficult to get on with, by and large. But in my family unit, my parents' family, there's no give and take. It's all had to be the one way, which was my mum's way. So my dad is seen as a very marginalised personality. He is terrorised as well. Growing up, my brother and I were very terrorised. I can see that my dad is humiliated now. He is in a situation he's not comfortable with. He doesn't want to be, but he doesn't quite know how to deal with it, I don't think. You've got this one person who has wanted to challenge everything in life and to take control of everything. And I don't really think life should be like that. Life can be full of rich experiences, but to break it down... In our family unit, just having a meal together was very difficult, very, very difficult. There were so many rules and regulations and anger and threats and just no harmony. So that at any point in my life that there's been harmony, that's then jarred because it's it's so unusual. That has created the estrangement by and large because... You're trying to protect yourself from that. It's been assaulted all the time, you know. And then you make not necessarily the right judgments with other people because you're looking for something and asking for it from other people. That's the expectation that you feel they would provide is a balance, nurturing judgment, but you know, so you can learn from it. Love, I would like to have said love. Safety, security, that's what you need to be able to go forward. If you've got that in a family, in a home, in the environment, then outside you can cope with anything. You can cope with anything in the home and then you can cope with anything out of the home. If you don't have that in a home, you've got to fight everything on every level and humans can't fight all the time. It's impossible. You need a safe space. You need time to get well. You need time to reflect. You need to recover. And that's why I say life shouldn't just be about being miserable. You can marvel at the sunset. You can marvel at the beauty in life. There's enough negativity around. We don't need to experience it in our homes as well. Yeah, I think, again, that speaks to, like, the environment that you live in. People do need a kind of space where they feel safe. They don't have stress around them constantly and consistently. And where they can feel that they can relax. I mean, that's what home is about. It's incredibly challenging if you do have near constant stress in your home environment all the time. And if you have a close relationship with someone and it's antagonistic or it's stressful, or it's constantly conflicting, that is going to have a detrimental impact on your well-being, potentially your mental health. So it's really important to make sure that you get the appropriate amounts of space from people if you are choosing to keep them closer in your life and they are acting out certain behaviours on you, to just make sure that you get a break and to make sure that you get away and to really evaluate what that relationship is giving you and why that person is acting out in that way and what help could be sought for them. I feel this is similar with partners and romantic relationships 
too that if you have a incredibly antagonistic romantic relationship where you argue all the time and there's a lot of conflict in your life then it has a really detrimental impact mm. and I think the same is true of family members then if you are living in close quarters with family members or that you see them a lot and they're local to you and it is very antagonistic then it is going to be a very stressful situation and it's really important to manage that stress and manage your well-being and that's why I think some people do find estrangement to be very freeing and a very positive thing because when they leave behind that antagonism that judgment perhaps that sense of unacceptance and conflict then they do find themselves with a life that is a lot more peaceful and a life where they can set their own boundaries well, you have done that with your partner. You've created that new unit yeah. and, and made a new family with new ways of being with each other. Yeah, yeah. We've spent the first half of Nicola's episode hearing about her estrangement from her parents. Nicola also has a fragmented relationship with her four children and also her grandchildren. So here's the journey behind this divide. I married in my late 20s, had children in that relationship. And it was only when I had my last child, my fourth child, that I realised I wasn't really suited to the father. I think once I got that in my head, what more could you do? (laughs) I could have worked with that relationship, but I would have only been the one working in that relationship. There was no feedback. He didn't have the capacity for me of nurturing back. He met his own needs and not anybody else's. So I was the mother and mothering him. I was providing a home and providing a home for him. In the end, I thought, I want more than just to give to one person who doesn't appreciate it. Unfortunately, we had children who were ill and this meant a huge amount of sacrifice in lots of ways, but also no freedom. Their needs came first. He didn't see it like that. So he just disappeared for weeks, length of time. I wasn't going to throw away who I was on somebody who didn't understand and didn't appreciate. And that played itself out in the relationship where he chose a job, which meant he was away, which then gave me the chance to pull the family together, to create that family with them. I'd been a full-time carer for 15 years he just decided he wanted to hold on to me and I thought I don't want you holding me I'm not having anybody hold me now and that's when the fighting started the actual physical nightmare of a divorce and domestic violence it was a very fragmented part of my life and and has carried on For some reason, none of the mental side of it was taken into account. It was purely where are two families going to live? He had told me, if you stay in the house, I'll burn you out. So I said, I won't stay in the family home. I don't know whether I didn't project the right strength that was needed at the time. I know I was in a very confused state. It wasn't something I was familiar with. I hadn't been divorced before. From that point, my four children went in a different direction to me and it didn't matter what energies I put in whatever I wanted somewhere they were being tugged in a different direction 
in the last 20 years now, as I've moved away from them, away from the geographical place where they live, or I hear from them less, I see them less. I can understand that because it's, it's life. But I'm saddened that I am their mother and that I can't be in a place that's more important to them. I think that's the thing that hurts the most. But I can understand they are adults, they are young adults, they are finding their way in this world. It's difficult as it is. I don't know what they have to cope with on a day-to-day basis. I don't know their thought processes. I can't imagine what life presents to them. I don't feel I'm of any benefit to them. There's one child who's in more often contact with me out of the four children. This estrangement really does upset me. I've tried to deal with it in lots of different ways. I've tried to read up, I've tried to find support and it has made me very angry to be in this situation. I know there's other parents who've lost their children for whatever reasons and I'm sure would like to know there's somewhere they could understand how to deal with it but it's I don't know how you go about it. Our society is made up of how we see the family unit. And although the family can present however many members of whatever gender, you know, it doesn't really matter. When you're not part of that, it's a raw feeling. And to know you're cast aside, how do you deal with it? When people talk, they will ask, do you have family? You know, so it comes back to who are you how do you define yourself and you can't turn around and say uh, I'm no longer a parent I am a mother I will always be a mother but I've had to fight to hear that to recognize that to say that to feel strong to say that because I lost my children I lost that contact I desperately wanted to keep that going I tried everything in every way I looked for support from professionals And I was told over and over, you are a mother. But they weren't hearing that I wasn't with my children. I couldn't get that relationship that meant I was seeing my children regularly or that it was a functioning ability anymore. And yet I am still a mother. I I know I'm a mother. I still feel like a mother. My new husband, he understands all my pain. He's heard my pain. He's dealt with my pain. He's there with the hugs. He's there with the knowledge, the security. I still feel an affinity with my children. I still feel for them. I still hurt for them. I still want to hear from them, even if it's through somebody else. I've also got grandchildren now, and the pain continues because they are my blood. And it I never knew how I was going to feel as a grandparent, but I see my grandsons and I feel love for them and I I see beauty and perfect little beings that have been created and they have part of me in them I can see their smiles I can see their fingers I can see their toes they are similar to mine and that has given me joy just knowing that they are there in this world and I would have loved to have been part of their lives but I also have accepted that it's not going to happen that has been painful, but I think that I've gone through a lot of 
processes of trying to understand all of this and trying to deal with it in my own way, I'm now dealing with it much better. Do you want to know how I feel I've coped? I'm here to listen to whatever you'd like to say. Absolutely. Okay. Well, I think the anger needed to be discharged. I've carried a level of anger throughout my life for different reasons, but this one would just come up and over and bubble over so quickly. And it could so easily have been destructive and probably was to a degree, but I I needed to keep busy and I wanted to do something that was for me. And I thought, I love my garden. So I made over the whole of my garden and dug up all the grass and moved all the earth. The first year I created a mess, <laughs> but I loved it. I loved getting down. I loved the dirt. I loved the smell of the dirt. I loved it. The freshness, the beauty of it. It gave me so much joy. And I liked the hard work of it. And I liked the digging. I really enjoyed the digging. So the second year when I kind of put plants probably a little bit too close together or whatever, it gave me a chance to move things around and establish a garden at the front as well. And I did the same thing. I don't ask myself why hadn't I heard from my children, you know, was I of so little worth in their lives, things like that. And so if the negativity was resurrecting, I did find a lot of comfort. It really felt so much better to be using my body with the energies and I felt better for it. I just felt healthy and clean and good. This here is a common thread between different people who've shared their journeys across this podcast series. You may remember in David's episode earlier how he talked really positively about his new hobbies, walking the dog around the lakes near his house, playing squash with his buddy, and the positive distractions this routine brings him. I do these walks with, with a buddy of mine. He has, a, he has a dog as well, a Jack Russell. So we're able to let the dogs off the lead quite frequently and they play and we chat as we walk. And for me, those experiences of, uh, of friendship, like going for the walks, playing squash with another buddy, you know, my climbing buddy, we've now go to the cinema once a week together as well. I think in some ways, since my separation and the estrangement with the children, my friendships have become richer because of sharing. I think men especially tend to have friendships that can be based purely around an activity. So you have a squash buddy that you play squash with. You have a climbing partner that you climb with. And all you talk about with these people is the activity that you're, you're doing or very superficial aspects of your life. But because of how emotional the experience of the estrangement was for me, my relationship with my friends moved into a much more deeper level of communication and sharing with them. I always try and find a positive in every situation. And I think the estrangement from my children has made my relationships with my friends much stronger, much richer. And Nicola talked about the energy and the escapism of using her body and finding something physical. It's the same for Becca Bland as well in her yoga teaching and practice. I think the thing that's helped me the most would definitely be yoga and my spiritual practices. And so those things are 
I wouldn't say they're hobbies, I would say they're non-negotiable parts of my life now because they are so very helpful. Yoga particularly has helped me forge a new relationship with myself one of gratitude, one where I'm able to understand my strengths, both physically and emotionally. And it's really, really helped my mental health. I think yoga has also helped me to find forgiveness, something that I always say, and it's a kind of a mantra that I say when I start my practice, is that I forgive myself for needing more than my parents could give me. And I forgive my parents for not being able to give me what I needed. And that mantra has really, really helped me to foster forgiveness in my life, both to myself and be gentle with myself and be forgiving and kind to myself, but also to forgive my parents who weren't able to give me what I really needed. I think that practice, really, really strong practice that yoga can give you has just been invaluable. And that sense of gratitude is really, really important. And then to discover my art, I've always had a creative side, but I'd never had it nurtured. So I was raw (laughs) raw with doing things I wasn't uh, experienced. I didn't have any professional understanding of art at all. It was all very amateurish, but I enjoyed that side of it and wanted to develop. So this year, that's what I've taken up. And I think I'm ready for it. It feels like everything has fallen into place now so that The pain of my children, the pain of my parents is in the background and it isn't something I have to dwell on. It isn't something I have to see as part of my identity as much because I've now got something I can offer by who I am, which is through my garden, through my home, through my art. Nobody else sees it. I'm not doing it for the people. I'm doing it because I enjoy doing it. And I'm enjoying learning about it and understanding. I think with structure and guidance, and I think that's, that probably sums up what my life has been like. It's all been trial and error. Everything I've done, I never had a good grounding from. I never understood. I think that is just so important. Like my husband said, if you'd have had the family, if you'd have had the proper schooling, you could have gone on and become, you know, he laughs and said, you could have been the prime minister. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> Nicola, as, as well as finding escapism through your gardening and through your art, you also, very early on in the conversation, you mentioned finding online communities. To be honest, any of the online communities, they had a function to a point, And then I had to leave them because they just became a bit too overwhelming. I probably looked for information, looked for the answers, but couldn't really find them bogging, you know, bogged me down too much. One of these sites I went on, I was offloading too much, I think, and they got concerned and asked me to leave, you know, and I couldn't at the time understand what I'd said or what I'd put, but I was obviously expressing things that was too raw, maybe, And that that probably wasn't safe for other people, you know. It's those stages you have to go through, or I have to go through, to pull back in again and look at myself. And yes, I was angry at the time, you know, oh, somewhere else I've been rejected. But then you find another level, find another way of trying to deal with it, to, to understand or to go forward. It's not the whole of me. 
And like my husband said, if people wanted to get to know me, they would find a rich personality. You know, I'm also trying to find who I am and trying to see where I fit in. And if that means I'm on the margins, then I'm okay with that. A whole different ball game if I didn't have my husband, I don't think. But while I do, I'm happy and I'm safe and I'm secure. <laughs> One of the things that I found so moving about talking to Nicola was her resilience. She struggled through her life with relationships with family members, both in the generations before and after her own and gone through a very difficult breakup with a former husband. And in the face of all of that adversity, she keeps going and tries to focus on things that bring her joy. If a person is coming from an area that hasn't gone through these issues and have no knowledge of this, the depths and the passions and the anger and the, the hurt, sometimes their comments can be very glib, very hurtful. Then that creates another set of anger. Because you feel set apart as if, again, you failed in the should be trying department or should have a backbone department. Again, I've had to pull away from somebody well-meaning who's supposedly trained and can offer support, but it hasn't provided the support for myself. I don't know whether I'm too strong a character, too weak a character, whether I can't stand to be criticised or whether I hear criticism when there isn't criticism and maybe I am an individual and yeah maybe I'm I've struggled with the pain of all of these issues but at the same time found it difficult for any one body one person to understand and deal with it I'm just trying to deal with it as best as I can (laughs) thank you so much nicola okay you're welcome (laughs) bye then jay bye have a good rest of your sunday okay thank you bye standalone is a really small charity and i started the charity seven years ago and have built it up to what it is now which is supporting people in six different locations and also running a national campaign for students to get them more support and visibility in their higher education process we've done a huge amount in such a small time What we really need to ensure that we are around in the long term and that we can scale properly is more donations from people like you. If you support charities, you'll know that there are bigger charities that ask for donations all the time on TV, on billboards, on the tube, on the bus, and they have really huge campaigns. This is great, but as a small charity, we can't afford those kind of campaigns. So we're asking you, our committed listeners who are impacted by this issue, to support the charity. And if you can set up a monthly donation of just five or ten pounds, it makes a huge difference to what we can do for you. If you go to our Just Giving site, which is www.justgiving.com slash standalone, then you can make a donation, a one-off donation, and also set up a monthly donation if you're able to. Your funds go a really long way to help people with this niche issue, and it means a lot to me as a founder to see other people supporting the charity. A lot of people think that support should just be with them, but we really need everyone to contribute to make sure that this support can scale and grow and reach as many people as possible. 
please do consider giving a monthly donation to Standalone or giving us a one-off donation on the Just Giving site. Thank you. You have just been listening to the penultimate episode of the Stand Alone podcast, season one. Thank you to Nicola, and thank you to everyone else across this series who have shared their stories, their journeys, their experiences of estrangement with us. It's a testament to these 10 people who have been so free and open and willing to talk about their experiences. Hopefully you've been able to take away thoughts and ideas that are useful for your own experiences as you've listened along to this series thus far. Becca and I are currently talking about potential ideas for season two. And if you'd like to share any thoughts with us regarding how we approach, how we tackle season two, then please do get in contact. We're very open to molding and shaping this podcast so it's the best that it can be for you. As ever, the best way to get in touch with us would be to tweet us at UK Stand Alone. Either send us a tweet or a direct message. And if you haven't already, if you find this podcast useful, the best thing you could do for us is share it with other people who might find this podcast useful in their own lives. And to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We have one final episode of season one. Yasmin. Whenever I try and get advice and help from mosques or people in the community about this, the majority of people say, well, where's your male family member? Or why can't you approach your brother? And they don't really understand when I try to explain that my brother has cut me off, you know, because I won't pick sides. So it's, it's, it's really difficult to navigate through that, especially as a woman. I mean, I've been through periods in my life where I felt really resentful to God. I blamed Allah for everything that I've been through. I blamed Allah for the patriarchy within my community that I had experienced, the fact that I had to deal with this unfair burden and people had hidden behind Islam to sort of keep me doing what they wanted me to do. But as I've become a bit better now, I don't see the problem as being my faith. I don't see the problem as being Islam. The problem is people's misconceptions of Islam and patriarchy, actually, and men trying to hide behind Islam to control control women. And unfortunately, there's a lot of that that goes on within my community. If you are feeling lower than normal or need immediate support with your well-being, please call Samaritans for free on 116-123 or make an emergency appointment with your GP. Standalone UK are such a small charity and so they cannot give out individual advice. If you want to talk about the podcast, head online and go to their Twitter page at UK Standalone to join in the discussion. Remember that Standalone has lots of advice on their website as part of their guides. The Standalone podcast was produced by me, Jay Sykes, for Becca Bland of Standalone UK.